right, before we start, uh, we'll just we'll just pray. Oh my heavenly Father, I, I give you thanks, Lord, for your faithfulness. Lord, I, I thank you for these words that you've given me. I thank you, Lord, that you know over the last few weeks as as I've I've mulled over these words and thought on them and prayed with them. Lord, how you've strengthened my faith in you and your trustworthiness. And Lord, I pray that as others hear these words, that by your Holy Spirit you would strengthen their faith in you. That Lord, each will go home strengthened and their trust in you and your faithfulness. So I thank you, Lord, for these words, and I pray that you would use them for your glory. Well, as, as you can see, I've entitled this sermon, Assurance of Salvation. Now, it comes from my last sermon where I spoke on Acts 16.30 where the jailer asked Paul and Silas what was necessary for salvation and what I addressed in that sermon was what, was, what, what, what it was to be saved, what salvation was and I, I did that because and this sermon is also part of that same thing because it came from that sermon I did on the church at Laodicea, where Jesus said in Revelation 3 that this particular church was blind and naked and spiritually destitute, which, as I stated, means that they can't have been true Christians. You know, and, and how do you have a church of unbelievers and unconverted? So that's what I want to, to, to touch on because I think this is an issue that needs addressing. We need to be clear on what salvation is, how it's obtained, and that we are indeed saved. In this address, I hope to look at more of these salvation issues so that we can, as we should, have complete and absolute confidence that we are saved. And especially in this sermon, I want to look at the why we can have confidence in this. I touched on this issue of assurance of salvation in my last sermon. And it's what I want to look at deeper. And I think many Christians struggle with this issue. So it's one we need to repeatedly address. Now the key verse I'm using for this sermon is Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So keep this verse in mind as I go through this sermon. 
Now, Phil, in his last sermon, he touched on this on an issue. He said that the stumbling block for all mankind is salvation by faith. That is the trusting in the grace of God. Mankind seems to think it's their good works or it's their, there is something in them that will endear them to God. But if salvation is by works, then it's wages. It's owed. God owes them and it's dependent on us and there's room for pride. But salvation by faith means it's totally dependent upon another, which means we must trust another to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is a stumbling block. It's having to trust another. And that leaves no room for pride, and there can be no reliance on self. In fact, it's the reliance on self that is part of the stumbling block to faith. If we're hoping in our own righteousness, then we're undone, for we are trusting in our own works. We're then under the law, and it's impossible to, impossible to obtain the righteousness that the law demands to be right in God's sight. For even if we manage to do the works of righteousness, our thoughts and desires would betray us for the corruption within. If we have to do good works to be counted righteous, then we aren't under grace, but works and the law, and God will hold us to the standard he demands, which is perfection in thought, desire and deed. It's when we comprehend the impossibility of obtaining the righteousness of the law is that when we cling to grace and must then rely upon another to perform that which he promised, which is faith. Believing in Christ isn't just believing in his existence, or that he was a good bloke, or he was, had good teachings. It's believing as in trusting in him to keep his word. And his word is that all who believe in me shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. When Israel failed to enter the land, the promised land, the first time, it was because of their unbelief. Now, it wasn't unbelief in God's existence. They had ample evidence for that. It was unbelief in his goodness and unbelief in his promises, and it was unbelief in his ability to fulfill his word, i.e. they didn't trust him. God had to fulfill his promise to Israel. His reputation was at stake, but the first ones to be given the promise missed out, for it wasn't received in faith. It was their refusal to believe in God's ability to fulfill the promise that caused them to doubt and to ultimately to miss out on the promise because of unbelief. Joshua and Caleb obtained the promise. Why? Because they trusted God to perform what was promised and to fulfill it. The how wasn't their problem. God made the promise and they expected him to fulfill it. 
God had to get Israel into the land, promised land. Otherwise, people that knew of God removing Israel from the land of bondage with great and mighty acts would say that God was unable to get Israel into the promised land. And that would mean God couldn't keep his promises. You see, God jealously guards the honour of his name. As stated in Ezekiel 20.14 But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. This should cause all who call themselves Christian to stop and take stock. Are we honouring his great name with our lives? For if we are shaming his name by our actions or our unbelief, we're in a very precarious position. God must perform that which he promises, otherwise he isn't trustworthy. For if you put your name to a promise and then you don't fulfill it, then you dishonour your name as untrustworthy. But for us to gain the promise, we must meet the condition of the promise to gain it. We, like Israel, have been removed from the land of bondage. But as yet we haven't obtained the land of promise, but are still travelling through the wilderness and barren lands, and we're still walking in faith. But we, unlike Israel, must trust God to bring us into that land as promised. And that is faith. The how isn't our problem. God made the promise, and I fully expect he's able to do what he promised. Even though at times I wonder how he can get me from here to there. If we start to doubt God's grace, to doubt his ability to keep his word, to doubt the promises, if the storms and giants in our lives causes us to doubt him, to doubt his goodness and ultimately to doubt God, then we're in danger of falling into unbelief and like Israel, to miss out on the promise. God will perform what he promised, never doubt that. But if we don't trust him, then like Israel, we'll miss out because of unbelief. It's not God that's a problem. He's given us the promises. He is trustworthy to fulfil that which he promised and has ample ability to do so. But if we don't receive the promises and faith in God, then these promises will do us no good. And we, like unbelieving Israel, will perish in the wilderness. If the enemy can get us to doubt God's goodness and ability to fulfill his word, if he can get us to doubt his promises, then that is the first step to unbelief. Our faith in Christ must be to complete that which he has started, for the promise isn't fulfilled until it is completed. And God has staked his reputation on keeping his word. So it is in faith in him to do so and our continuing faith to do so that matters. When we trust Jesus for salvation, 
is trusting him to save us from our sin, is saving us from our propensity to sin, is saving us from the devil, is saving us from this world, and it's saving us from ourselves. And it's the ongoing trusting him to save us, to complete that work he has started, trusting that he is both able and willing to do so, and to do so despite our best efforts, to bring us into the land of promise. This is called faith. Jesus gave us many promises of salvation, and the only condition of each is faith in him for salvation. To enter into his salvation then is by faith in him, and it's a continuing faith in him to fulfill the promise. I don't think you can just accidentally lose your salvation. As it was a deliberate act to gain it, also it must be a deliberate act to lose it. If we sin, we won't lose it, for then it won't be de- then for then it would be de- dependent on us. But He will have to correct us. If we fall short, we won't lose it, for His grace is sufficient for us. If we have doubts and struggle with life, we won't lose it, for He is faithful who promised. And the promise isn't conditional on our performance, but on faith in him to do the impossible and to save us. I don't think we can depart from Christ without realising it. He is fully able to keep that which is committed into his hands, despite our failings. For surely part of our trusting him to save us is to save us from our own failings and inconsistencies. He will not let us go easily. But if it is your wish to leave, it will be granted. Why you would throw away a winning lotto ticket is beyond me, but I guess it's possible. The simple truth is that God, through Christ, saves sinners through faith. And I also know that it will take more than man or devil to snatch what is Christ from God's hand. We don't have to overcomplicate the gospel message. Just simply trust God to do as he promised. But if we stop believing in him for salvation, then we're in mortal danger of losing it, for we have stepped out of the condition of the promise. In marriage, it must be a definite, deliberate, conscious decision to form a relationship. You may drift into a friendship or relationship, but to be formally married is a deliberate decision by both parties, and it's the same with divorce. It must be a definite, deliberate, conscious decision by one or both parties to end the relationship. Though you may drift apart by negligence, negligence of the relationship, the act of divorce is a deliberate conscious decision to break the relationship. And I think it's the same with Christ. It must be a conscious decision to enter into the, a relationship with Christ. And to end it, it can only be by a conscious deliberate decision. 
Though you may drift there by negligence of the relationship, to end the relationship must be a deliberate act. I think if we neglect our relationship with Christ, and note, is our negligence, not his, for he is faithful. He will bring us to that decision of, do you still want to be in this relationship with me? For love must allow the exercise of the free will. The free will to enter into that relationship and also the free will to end it. If we neglect this most important of relationships, then there is a real danger of divorce. Now on this issue of salvation, in Matthew 19, 25, 26, it says, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What Jesus is saying here is that salvation, that is being made right with God, is impossible for man to obtain by his own efforts. The keeping of rules and regulations cannot make you right with God. But what is impossible for man, God has made possible through Christ. In Luke 3, 4-6 it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crook shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What the prophet is saying here is that God has removed the difficulty, nay, the impossibility of salvation for mankind by straightening the road making the path straight, and the high falling in the low is making the path level. He's making the path to eternal life obtainable. That which was once unobtainable and impossible by man, God has made obtainable through Christ. But it's a straight and narrow path that few find because it is only perceived by faith and can only be walked by faith. God in doing this has given the hope of salvation to all mankind who will receive it. You see, the height of God's standard of righteousness is unobtainable for man to reach. And the depth of man's sinful nature is too deep for man to climb out of. And God won't lower his standard down to man's level. But he became a man to obtain that height and to impute that righteousness that he obtained to all those that would believe in faith. So he has levelled and straightened and smoothened the path to make salvation obtainable. To have your sins forgiven to have them removed as far as the east is from the west, to be forever forgotten is gain enough. 
but that is only the start of a relationship with our Creator and Saviour. The hope of eternity free from sin and corruption to be forever in his presence, who out of his great love made this even possible, who of his abounding grace brought to himself the undeserving, and to compensate our miserable loss causes us to be joint heirs with Christ, and as such to gain his reward of immeasurable riches. Oh, we're such, such wretched creatures, determined to hold on to a handful of dirt when we're offered such great treasures and bounty far beyond our imagination. How great must be his love that he would redeem such lowly creatures and call them the children of God. Any religion of works can give no assurance of salvation, or you can never know if you have done enough. But a promise, on the other hand, you can have a full assurance, because if the promise giver is trustworthy, and you have met the condition of the promise, you know that you will receive it. It's when we understand the futility of works for salvation is when we cling to grace. We work not for our salvation, but because of it. We cannot in any way add to what has been done, but works do bring rewards, but salvation is a gift. Understand the difference. Don't confuse the gift for the reward. There is great reward in following Christ, but salvation itself is a gift. There is no work to be done for, for Christ has done the work necessary. But as James said, faith without works is dead. So there should be evidence of a changed life. If you spend any time with the Master, something of Him will become evident in your life. That is how you can tell a false conversion. There is no evidence of a change. There is no evidence of an encounter with Christ. Sometimes it takes time, but there will, will be change. Since salvation is by gift, and we trust the gift giver, and we receive the gift in faith, then we can have a full assurance that we are saved, and that God will complete our salvation. The how isn't our problem. That's his problem. He made the promise. So I fully expect that he will complete it and trust that he will do so despite my inconsistencies. When our children were younger, we told them we were going to take them to the theme parks in Australia. Now I doubt that they for one moment worried about the how. We promised, so that made the how our problem. They just believed in the promise because they judged the promise giver trustworthy and left the how up to the promise giver. And as the time drew near, their excitement grew until they were just about bouncing off the walls with excitement. And when the time came, they were ready and received the promise because they believed in the promise giver. I think as Christians we would do well to learn from them. And as the time draws near of the fulfilment of the promise, 
May we too bounce off the walls of excitement. For after all, aren't we about to receive that which we've long hoped for? Another example would be if I stood up here and said, and note, this is an example, it's not a promise. But if I said, all who come to church next week, I will give $100. Then if you came, which would be meeting the condition of the promise, and I then did not give you $100, then I would have shamed my name and proven myself untrustworthy. But if you don't believe me and didn't come, then you haven't met the condition of the promise, so you can't expect to receive it. Even if you don't particularly believe I'm trustworthy, but you still come, so even though your faith is little, you have still met the condition of the promise and will receive what was promised, even if your faith in me wasn't perfect. The promise wasn't on how great your faith is, but on coming. Maybe you don't know me that well and have doubts whether I'm trustworthy or not. But despite your doubts and imperfect faith, you still come. You've still met the condition of the promise and will gain the same promise as the one that has known me for many years and has great faith that I will fulfill what I promised. How I'm going to pay up isn't your problem. That would be my problem since I put my name to a promise. And if I want to prove that I'm trustworthy, then I would have to pay up to all who met the condition of the promise. But if you doubt me, if you doubt the promise, if you don't come, then you can in no way expect to receive the promise. And this is the confused understanding that many in the world have. They don't believe God, they don't believe his promises, yet somehow hope that they will make it up there somewhere for the thought of themselves or a loved one just ceasing to exist is a terrible thing when you stop to contemplate it and that is why people want the hope of the Christians but you can't separate the gift from the giver if you don't believe the promise and you don't believe the promise giver then in no way can you expect to receive the promise Those that don't know our Lord that well, seek to know him better. Let him prove himself to you. Doubt not his goodness and trustworthiness, nor his ability. Not to know about him, but to know him. To experience for yourself his faithfulness. To place your trust in someone requires that a first step of faith is taken. And, and as that trust is proven worthy, Time after time it will grow, if we allow it, until we come to such a place of trust that like Job, who had come to such a place of trust that he said, though God slays me, yet will I still praise him. Sinner, if you have never taken that first step of faith in Christ, then turn from your sin that just rots your soul and take that step of faith and receive his mercy and grace. Don't take my word for it, but taste for yourself that the Lord is good. Let him prove himself to you. 
Know what a blessed relief it is to have your sins forgiven. Know what a peace it is to know that you're not your own keeper. Oh, what a blessed relief to know that I'm, my eternity is committed into the hands of one far greater than I. One who has brought the mountains low and the depths up so as all who will receive the promise can gain it by faith. But come, <coughs> come letting our Lord prove himself to you and to build your timid first step of faith. If you have walked with Christ many years, and he's proved himself faithful time and time again in the past, don't doubt his faithfulness to do what he promised. The promise isn't fulfilled until it's completed. Trust him no matter what befalls us. Trust him if, even if no others will. Trust him even when the promise seems impossible, when the doubts are prevailing in our thoughts. Trust him, for he who has promised is faithful. Our salvation isn't dependent on us. It's dependent on Christ. The only thing we're asked to do, which is the only thing we can do, is believe he will do as he promised, and to trust him to do so. When Jesus in Mark 16, 16 says, Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved. He isn't saying they may be saved, or they might be saved, or they could be saved. He said they will be saved. That will is a definite article. If someone is believing in Christ for salvation, they are and will be saved. That's it. It's definite. His reputation is on the line here. If we begin to doubt Christ's promises, to doubt his ability to perform them, to doubt God, then we are in danger of falling into unbelief and will then, like Israel, fall in the wilderness. If your hope of salvation is based on anything but Christ and the cross, then it is a false assurance. It is a false hope and you are deceived. An assurance that does not lead to a more holy walk is a false assurance because true faith will permeate through our entire being if it is real, affecting thought and deed. For those that would trust in themselves and their good works or in some religious system or that God is love and will nod and wink at my sin or that you aren't too bad and in fact, compared to Hitler or Stalin, I'm in fact quite good, then that is a false assurance, for it's backed by no promise or no promise giver. If you aren't in Christ, if you've not met the condition of the promise, then the only assurance you can have is the assurance of your certain doom. If you can only say... I hope I'm saved, or I think I'm saved, or I believe I'm saved, then you cannot say you have any assurance that you are saved. You ought to be able to say without the least shadow of doubt whatsoever that you know you are saved and can prove by scripture the certainty of your claim. I know I'm saved, not because I feel saved, 
but because the Bible tells me I am. Feelings don't come into it. I've met the condition of the promise. I know the promise giver is trustworthy and I know he is able to perform that which he promised and that is my assurance. God says I'm saved through faith in Christ and that is good enough for me. The how is his problem. John Newton had this to say on this topic. Assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, have given up all hope and been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety, and when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply to the word and power of God, beyond and against appearance. And this trust, when habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance, for even assurance has degrees. John Newton. Many, I think, don't have this assurance of their salvation simply because they won't take God at his word and believe. If you don't have this assurance of salvation, then you must urgently seek it till you have it. For as Spurgeon says, If anyone is not sure that he is in Christ, he ought not to be easy one moment until he is sure. Dear friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition, you have no right to be at ease, and I pray that you may never be so. This is a matter too important to be left undecided. We can have a full assurance of we can have a full assurance of salvation simply because the promise giver is trustworthy. That's it. The way he will complete it is his problem. Just trust him to do so. We can have great faith in God's promises, for he has put his name and hence his reputation and honour upon his promises, and he jealously guards the honour of his name from dishonour. If Christ, even just once, doesn't bring into the land of promise one that is trusting him to do so, then he isn't trustworthy. And God stakes his reputation on keeping his promises. So that is why we can have a full and absolute confidence in him to bring us into the land of promise, despite the difficulties involved. For his great reputation would be ruined if he didn't. We need to have a complete confidence in God's faithfulness to have an absolute assurance of salvation so that our faith won't falter when the pressure comes on and the perilous times that all upon the earth will face. So to finish, why can we have a full assurance of salvation? Simply as the author of Hebrews pointed out, he who promised 
is faithful. Oh, my Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for that, that you are faithful and that is our assurance, that you will complete that work that you have started in our life and you'll bring us into that land of promise. Lord, we give you thanks for those many promises that you have put your name on and you will perform. Lord, help us Help us to truly trust you to do that, Lord, to not doubt, even when we can't see the way forward, Lord. Oh, strengthen us in our assurance of, our, of your salvation, Lord, that we have in Christ. Lord, those that don't have this assurance or unsure of it, Lord, I pray that you would just draw them to that place as they search your word to, to find your promises and to to make sure they're in the condition of the promise, Lord, that they would find that full assurance and know that in you they're safe. Lord, so I thank you for that and I pray that you use these words to strengthen and encourage your people wherever they go. So I thank you, Father, for your grace that is indeed sufficient for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.